0: Welcome to Living on Purpose. I'm Mark Pumphrey, along with my co-host, Dr. Christy Stewart, coming to you from the Circle City, Indianapolis, Indiana. And you know, Christy, we got this show
1: together because we wanted to get people to think about those things they think about, right? That's true. And a lot of understanding and communicating what you think and what you feel is through 7% verbal and 93% through body language and tone of voice. So if we misuse or misunderstand the meaning of a word then the body language following will be just an inaccurate um, representation of that, whatever that word is, and then mm-hmm. that really impacts our communication process uh, negatively. So understanding what word means is pretty important.
0: Well, I guess that's why you give the definition right up front, so then that way we're all clear we're on the same page, right?
1: Right, and this has been a show we've wanted to do for a really long time because words matter. Mm-hmm. What words you use and what the meaning of that word that a lot of times we have no idea what the meaning word or the origin of the word really means impacts our communication process.
0: Absolutely. So that's why we brought in a specialist on. There you go. <laughs> so today we have guest Dr. Marsha Epic Harris. I got to tell you, love the name. Don't ever change <laughs> it. Don't ever change it. <laughs> and she is a creative director, writer and editor of Tiki Kitchens inks. So I'm gonna ask you about that later on in the show because okay. I, I kind of that I'm seeing something. Uh, I'm thinking kitchen, but I'm not. That's not what it is, right? Right.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but she's also a Shakespearean independent scholar, so she actually knows a lot about Shakespeare, which. It's going to help us here because I know nothing about well, Shakespeare. She's knows
1: a lot about a lot of things. And that's right, <laughs> but
0: yeah, but it, she kind of—it's it, kind of interesting because we get so much from Shakespeare, a lot of words, but a lot of times we don't understand the meaning of these words, right? I mean, it happens right. so often. Right. So thank you for coming on, giving us some um, insight on this because I think people really do need to understand what they say matters.
2: Absolutely, I couldn't agree more, and I think that we see. You know, not to be totally political, but I think we see the leader of our country saying things a lot of times that he, I, I'm not sure that he understands the symbolism or the impact of what he's saying. It oh, so, I'm, so I'm for sure um, he doesn't understand the symbolism i the, symbolism. So I, the words. I, I think, you know, when we have uh, a devaluing of words and meaning, mm. um, that can lead us down really problematic paths. So I I think that it's a really good thing to talk about words and why they matter and how even just one single word can have an impact on everything.
1: Can you give us an example?
2: Yeah. Yes. Um, Just the other day, you know, there's this impeachment inquiry going on with President Trump, and um, he tweeted something about lynching, right? So the exact quote was, all Republicans must remember what they are witnessing here, a lynching. And that was on Tuesday the 22nd on Twitter. And that tweet, I believe, has since been removed. But the real problem with uh, using the word lynching is that it's got a historical context and a cultural context that is completely inappropriate for Trump to use in his case. You know, lynching is, you know, it's defined as... Uh, and this is from a Washington Post article. They defined it as the extrajudicial murder of an untried suspect, usually by a mob and often by hanging. And in the United States, of course, this is directly related to slavery and racism. And so for President Trump to use the lynching to, you know, his, his impeachment inquiry and, um, and to compare that to lynching is you know, historically and symbolically disgusting and mm-hmm. inaccurate. Um, but it creates an emotional response, which was the does. point. It does, exactly, yeah. So, and the thing is, is that, you know, I, I think that a lot of people think that Trump is an idiot, and maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but sometimes he is pretty brilliant in the, his word choices because they do inspire an emotional reaction, and that's really what he's going for. And it's, it's interesting to compare him to President Obama, who was very careful in all of his word choices and would never have gone in that direction to compare uh, an obstacle in his presidency to lynching um, because he's aware of the historical and cultural context of that. So maybe Trump is doing exactly what he wants to do and getting an emotional response with that word, but it also is really painful for a lot of people to hear that kind of language used in you
1: know, in his circumstances, well, flippantly, used, for, yes, it, yeah. flippantly
0: used. there you exactly. go, exactly.
2: Right. And because
0: again, it's not literally what's happening. It's not you know,
1: it's not it's not even figuratively.
0: Really, it's just you just use the word. So it was right. out of context. It was inappropriate. You know, but that's what we're kind of talking about: is people using the wrong words at the wrong time, or using not the right words. At any time you or know not
1: understanding the words that you're using exactly that, that was a example that you had sent in your email that you had said you watched a Shakespearean play recently that the actors obviously didn't know what the words meant so right. it really impacted how the audience was perceiving the play and I had never thought about that I didn't before either. Obviously as, as a teacher you get when people write things, that Okay, that doesn't make any sense, but I never thought about it in a play, especially a Shakespearean play where it's hard anyway, mm-hmm. but that really is what we want to talk about today is the importance of what words you use and don't use words that you don't know what they really mean Right. or that they have some kind of cultural undertone that would be potentially inappropriate like we've already discussed. Right,
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was a a teacher, an English teacher um, professor for 17 years and I would often find um, not just in student papers but even when editing you know like freelance editing or whatnot a lot of times people will use a thesaurus in order to make their writing sound intelligent but they will often run into a problem of You know, using a sort of close word, but not the right word. And that can be really problematic. So, for instance, if you wanted to say that someone was very, very famous, but you didn't want to say that they were just famous, right? Um, You know, someone might be tempted to look at a thesaurus and use the word infamous. But... Infamous mm. doesn't mean that somebody is, you know, like, oh, they're so famous and great. It means that they are famous for maybe a bad reason, <laughs> right? right? Like example, Hitler. Yeah. Hitler is infamous, right? Right. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, that's a sort of, it's what I want it to, I want it to, I want to say it's an amateur writer move, but it's mm-hmm. really not people who have been writing for years and years will fall into traps like that, you know, just because they want to vary their word choices, which is a good thing. However, you have to know what the word means. You have to know what the connotation is. And that oftentimes means that you have to go digging very deeply into a dictionary if you don't know what the word means or even the history of the word or the etymology of the word, um, which is why I really recommend that Anybody who's interested in words uh, should get interested in the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the most comprehensive dictionary in the English language, and it contains the history of words. So I, you know, have a subscription to the OED because it's you know familiarly known as the OED, Oxford English Dictionary. I have a subscription to it because. I like reading the dictionary <laughs> and finding out what the history of a word is.
0: So and, don't play Scrabble with you is what we're trying <laughs> <in> to
2: <what> do the... <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's not even that because I have a terrible memory. However, um, no, I, I think that especially when you're thinking about the context of a word, you'll find really surprising things when you're looking in the Oxford English Dictionary. Because most people just
1: pull out the Webster. Yeah. yeah so what's the there. difference between the Webster and Oxford?
2: Right. So the Webster's Dictionary is more for the average Joe, um, although editors use it. You know working for a publisher or something you know oftentimes the merriam-webster dictionary is going to be a comprehensive enough dictionary that's going to give you usage and it's going to um, give you definitions and like for instance is 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 timeline one word or two words is a certain word always hyphenated or not always hyphenated is it hyphenated when it's a, used in an adjective form or whatever right so that's fine. Um, it's a great dictionary to use. But mm-hmm. if you are somebody who's a scholar studying medieval literature or Shakespeare or uh, anything in the Renaissance and you wanted to find out, okay, did this word exist in this form when Shakespeare was writing? So let's say I wanted to... I, I should have like prepared an example of this, but just, it just comes to the top of my head. Let's say that you want to... Um, Find out if Shakespeare uses the word automobile. Of course, we know he's not going to use the word automobile, right? Right. But if you wanted to know when the word automobile was coined, you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, and it will give you as near as we can find the first usage in writing of that word. And then it will also give, um, let's say it's a word that has multiple definitions. So one of the words that I brought today is counterfeit. And it has tons of definitions, which we think of counterfeit as just like counterfeit money, right? That's right, yeah. Yeah. In the Oxford English Dictionary, though, there are several pages of definitions of counterfeit. Based on time period? It's based on time period, but it's also based on the specific definition of the word. So let's see. I've got 10 pages of definitions for counterfeit. So
0: we're, I'm looking at the pages, folks. It mm-hmm. is 10 full pages yeah. of the word counterfeit right. in this definition. Right.
2: And that's why. I know. And the thing is is that it all comes down to like different nuances in the word, okay? So for instance, one of the definitions of counterfeit is of material things or substances, made an imitation of something else. So mm-hmm. like counterfeit money, mm-hmm. right? Well, when did that start being used in written language, in the English language, right? 1449, okay, is, a, is wow. a, an early instance <laughs> of that. And then it gives several different instances throughout literature, history, you know, philosophy, whatever. Anything that's like a, a significant piece of writing they will give some references so there are eight or nine different instances of this adjectival use of counterfeit okay Mm -hmm. and essentially it just means imitation and that's a current use of the word right Mm -hmm. now an an old way that uh, counterfeit has been used is as a picture shakespeare uses the word counterfeit to mean a an image of someone so like if you had like a little portrait image that was painted, it would also be called a counterfeit. Because, because it's
1: not the real thing? It's not, it's the, not the real person. Yeah, oh. it's not the real
2: thing. It's an imitation of the person. And so that image is called a counterfeit. Also, counterfeit can be used as a disguise. And that, you know, so let's say you are in one of Shakespeare's plays, um, Henry the Fourth, Part One. there's a battle. And several different people dress up as the king in order to, uh, you know, hide where the real king is, right? One of the soldiers, um, Douglas, uh, goes and you know, is killing all these different kings and he keeps saying, Oh, it's another counterfeit king, you know. That's another way that can be used. And that use goes back to fourteen ninety. You know, of course we know that counterfeit means to imitate something, but we wouldn't really think of it as like a disguise or a picture. Right, I right. definitely know? would have never thought of
1: it. But it makes sense. That.
2: Yeah. yeah. yeah, now yeah. yeah. It, it
1: makes well be
0: if you're going to the most simplest terms, it's not real. It's not the real it's thing. The right. Thing. So right. Technically anything that's not the real thing could be
2: counterfeit. As long as it's some kind of imitation yeah, yeah um it can also be an action well a sort of action in that same play another character fakes his death um in order to get out of fighting someone right and so he uh plays possum right pretends mm-hmm. to be dead mm-hmm. and then when he suddenly you know gets up and is not dead you know he says that it was time to counterfeit You know, to counterfeit death, Um, in in other words, to imitate death, and so that's you know. know. And then he has like a long speech, sorry, that has like several uh, instances of the word counterfeit in it, and he just keeps talking about how he's counterfeiting death. And then in that same play, this word comes up a lot in this play. Um, in that same play, they talk about counterfeiting money. So, I mean, there are lots of different. So, in one ways. play,
1: you can have several different
2: interpretations of the same word. Yes, and that actually, I think, is a really interesting thing that Shakespeare does. Is sometimes I find not everybody is as interested in this as I am, but I find it really interesting to look at how Shakespeare is using a word like counterfeit or um, any you know number of other interesting words. And, um, and it almost shows like a theme within the play. The king in that play usurped the throne and sort of, you know, uh, the, the rebels that are against him call him a counterfeit king, uh, mm-hmm. you know that he's not like a real king. He's somebody who's a, a usurper. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that, that that word shows up in that play so many times, in fact, I wrote down how many times, 12 times in that play,
0: just the word, and it has Just, multiple, use, yeah, or yeah. multiple meanings. Yeah, right. I
2: mean, Twelve. Well, what times. does
1: that mean in like current? Because I, th- I would think, and I don't, have, I can't come up with an example off the top of my head. If you're in Southern Mississippi uh, versus New York City, mm-hmm. and you're using the same word, I would think there has to be tons of different interpret- cultural, different interpretations of the same word geographically.
2: Yes, I think that's true. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example myself. Some of my examples um, would be like British English versus American English. So like a car park or or a parking lot. It's funny. <laughs> Last
1: year at this time I walked the Canterbury trails. Mm-hmm. From, I walked from London to Canterbury mm-hmm. and I used a, uh, a direction book instructions yeah. that were written in England and Some of these things, it took a long time to figure out what are they talking about. And that was one of them it was a parking lot. Right. But they called it something. I'm
2: like, I don't know what that means. Right. Yeah. Or a loo versus a toilet versus a water closet versus a bathroom. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can have so many differences for the exact same thing. I mean,
2: yeah. yeah. And some, you know, this is more true for Shakespeare than it is for us, but for certain situations, and this is also true for like, say French or Spanish or other languages for certain situations, you have a formal, uh, way to address someone or an informal way to address someone. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think people get hung up on thee and thou and things, you know, thine and thy and in Shakespeare. But oddly enough, that in the time period was an informal way to address someone. When Hamlet, for instance, says, get thee to a nunnery, he is talking to Ophelia and he is using an informal address, the, instead of you. But it sounds very
1: formal. It does. It does, right. Yeah,
2: And you can actually see, if you know that, you can actually see in Shakespeare where an informal address suddenly shifts tone and becomes a formal address. So in that same instance, in that same uh, scene, uh, he says uh, to her, Go thy ways to a nunnery. And then the very next thing he says in the next breath is, where is your father? So he says, go thy ways, which is informal. And then he says, where is your father? Which shows that there's a shift in tone because he's suddenly addressing her with you instead of thy father. Right. right? I think that most people would be like, so what? If you're thinking about it linguistically, it shows that Hamlet's attitude toward Ophelia has suddenly just shifted. And he is addressing her as sort of like a stranger and thinking, maybe I'm being spied on by her father right now. What's going on here? I think I'm in a trap, you know. The other interesting thing about that scene is when Hamlet says, you know, get thee to a nunnery, it can mean lots of different things. You wouldn't think this, but nunnery can either mean a convent or it can mean a brothel. In um, oh, there's a little bit of a difference there, yeah, yeah. So, in Shakespeare's language, uh, uh, nunnery is a sort of slang for a brothel. So, (laughs) again, if you were
1: an actor and you don't know that, you're gonna present that. I would convey
0: it as like it
2: was a a convent, right? You know, I would
0: have never thought it was. Ever considered anything else?
2: Right. Yeah. So, and Shakespeare does this thing where he packs in double meaning all the time, or even triple, or quadruple meaning. There's a part in Henry V uh, where a soldier is arrested for stealing a pax, and they're, they've invaded France. The British are, you know, trying to win back some territory in France that they say is theirs, but really is just kind of a land grab. And, well, what's a PAX? Okay, P-A-X, PAX. Well, a lot of um, Shakespeare anthologies will put, like, a, a, a note next to PAX and say this is, like, a small plate that's, like, stamped with a cross or a crucifix, you know, you might, like, uh, like kiss that plate during a, you know, ritual, like a Catholic ritual or whatever. Other editions will go on to say that this character, um, his name is Pistol, often has what we call malaprops in drama, um, and basically it's saying a slightly wrong word. So maybe he was actually trying to say the word picks, which is a very small container, that would be used to carry uh, the Eucharist. And that would be something that's very easy to steal because it's so small. And, you know, right. soldiers don't, you know, back at, back then, and this is a you know, poor soldier, he doesn't have, like, a, a big bag that he can carry a bunch of stuff in, so he would want to steal something that's small. Not that a Pax can't be small, but a, a Pix would be even smaller, probably. The guy says, you know, the soldier, Bardolph, is going to be hanged, because he stole a pax of little price. Why is that significant? Well, pax is Latin for the word peace. You know, if Shakespeare's trying to kind of pack in some extra meaning here, you know, as I said, this invasion into France is more like a land grab than a legitimate kind of war. Mm -hmm. And so Henry, the king, is stealing peace and for this character to be described as stealing uh, packs basically what it what i think it means is that this is a wrong thing to be doing overall because this character is compared very much to the king the pistol is this whole thing is wrong overall and then this like land grab is also uh significant because peace is described as having little price. But war is something you can make a lot of money from. And it can be not only employing lots of people to go to war, and so they'll be paid, But it also is uh, a way to, you know, you get prisoners that then can be sold off with ransom and then that gives the the crown money. The land, of course, would give the crown money and alliances with the uh, king of France, you know, marrying his daughter. That would, you know, uh, have a dowry along with it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there are lots of ways that saying this this pax um, is stolen and and saying that it's a little price can give lots of multiple layers of meaning there that if you change that word it it doesn't mean anything. One production of Henry V I saw in Canada changed packs of little price to a chalice of little price and i was so angry i like left out i left um in intermission it was just like pacing and and <laughs> saying like they just don't understand what th- this means you know and everybody else was saying oh i think it's fine i mean this is a good production right i'm like oh my god they don't even know what they're saying
0: <laughs> so well, i guess that goes back to what you were saying earlier is that since they changed the word because maybe they thought chalice was the exact same things as packed right or- well, they that's probably just right. looked
1: it up in Webster.
0: Or, well, yeah, right. or right. that's, it, you know, so therefore, you know, it changed the whole production of the show, especially for somebody that's in the know.
2: For somebody who's in the know. Now, for somebody who's just like a, a student or a, you know, just a regular old theater goer who just enjoys going to see Shakespeare, it's not going to really make much difference. Mm-hmm. But changing a small word, word like that is going to make me insane. Yeah, but the, I think the point,
1: though, is, is that as an example in... In the communication process, right. that when we just randomly do that, we do the same thing when we're trying to communicate with other people, and then we drastically change the message. You know, kind of like that. You know, when you played telephone as a kid or whatever, you know, somebody told somebody, and somebody told somebody, and somebody right. told somebody. By the time oh, yeah. it got to the end, it wasn't anything. And
0: or, you weren't even in the story. And a right?
1: lot <laughs> of times, I think it's that's that's one of those reasons is because we change words based on our perception that may or may not be right, and then five people down the road, it doesn't mean anything.
0: Right, right. and I, I, that happens a lot, especially when you're huh. trying to convey the message. And uh, one of the things that we've talked about many times is know your audience. Right, So right. oftentimes that's what happens is that we want to interject words. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, like my personal favorite, and it's that people overuse it so much, and then when you hear them say it, you're not using it in the right context, and that's surreal. You know, if it, it, you know what I'm saying. You hear these people's like, you know, and I'm going to say it three times: surreal, surreal, surreal. I mean, it's just like people talk about this story that really has no significance of anything, and there, and it was so surreal.
2: Was it surreal? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I I went to go see a play uh, last weekend called "And So We Walked," which was a wonderful production about it was a one woman play about um, a a native american woman who um, went on the trail of tears with her father and Mm. it was really fascinating and i had said on social media that i was going to go see that play and one of my friends said oh i went to see that yesterday or something like that she said it was interesting and i said oh man that's the worst word you can use to describe (laughs) a play something (laughs) that was interesting
0: I've used that a couple of times. Well, I
2: mean, it's like you know, interesting can be anything, though, right? It's just like surreal. It's it's a nothing word unless there's something behind <laughs> it, like truly behind it, you know. Right. Um And so, uh, what was interesting about it? I mean, people don't want to say because they don't want to spoil it for you or whatever, but um,
0: or they don't want to relive
2: it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. We've yeah. had a few of those. We've had either. a few. I mean, you know, you walk in like that was interesting. Meaning, mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about it i just right want to yeah so interesting is a terrible word i try to never use it
0: yeah interesting no I- <laughs> perfect <laughs> well and i gotta say these are some of the things i've been doing some research and i don't know if you've come across these kinds of things but i've never heard of this it's called victim words lifting words and destroying words have you ever heard of this
2: well, um. Not well. Maybe not in that like, context. Yeah. But, yeah. But um. I. I do. Th- I think there are some words that like can unintentionally be quite destructive. Um. I'm not sure if that's what you mean. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like
0: pro. It, well, like they. They were showing things like problem words and yeah. hate words and uh, sick words. I've never even heard of sick words. You yeah. know. But it. it so they were kind of given those examples like, you know, when we talk, when we're victimized, it, it, I have a problem.
1: Mm-hmm. So words that, what we talked about earlier, that mm-hmm. kind of initiate an emotion exactly. and a perception, just based on that what you're talking about?
0: Right, exactly. So when mm-hmm. somebody comes to you and it's like, you know, I have a problem. I can't get this fixed. I don't know what this is. Mm-hmm. And so it's like you come uh-huh. off like. I guess a victim is the way mm-hmm. I guess they're trying to describe it mm-hmm. and destroying words which they didn't really give any kind of good examples of that but but I would think things like lynching or you know uh, witch hunt and things like that those uh, you know those could be destroying words mm-hmm. especially when you're trying to tear something down Right,
2: and it can also give the connotation that this, like a witch hunt, is particularly interesting because there are no such thing as witches, right? Mm -hmm. And so the connotation there is that um, you're looking for something that doesn't even exist, but also you're referencing persecution that was very real, Mm -hmm. um, not only in America, but in England, Shakespeare's time, you know... um, And so, you know, even King James, uh, the king of England and, you know, Shakespeare's uh, second half of Shakespeare's career, um, he wrote a book called Demonology that was about witchcraft. He was obsessed with witches. And so for Trump or anybody else to use the words um, witch hunt... To classify his own troubles is dipping into a history that he again does not really understand, or if he does understand, um, he's you know using it not because it's literally true about his experience, but he's using it for an emotional reaction Mm -hmm. that um, is Is negative, is very negative. And don't
0: we do that? I mean, I gotta tell you, I mean, I've probably been in arguments with my wife, and I find that one. Button word or something, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I know that's gonna dig at you, mm-hmm. but I think that's what we we do that intentionally, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's not good. It's not healthy. Well, but. but
2: it's also really natural. I mean, not to not to like um, you know stand up for people using words to hurt people. I'm not. I don't think that's a good thing at all. But it's a way to persuade people, right? It's a way to be rhetorically effective and to argue your point. For instance if there's a, a rape case or something, they talk about having a victim impact statement. And you wouldn't call it, you know, like, a, you know, a, the, the raped person or something. You know, you call it a victim, and that's, mm-hmm. there's a reason for that. And thinking about the rhetoric of, you know, that someone is innocent until they're proven guilty, there's a persuasive... Argument behind those words that you know you cannot just assume that somebody is a rapist because they've been called a rapist. Um, Although you know we could talk about that because hardly anybody gets actually convicted of rape in comparison to the rapes that actually take place. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I words are really really powerful, and I don't think people think about that nearly enough. Um, No, they don't. Well, I don't think we look at it as being irresponsible, and that's how I look at it.
1: That's a very good point when when we use words that are emotionally driven for a response purposely or even
2: ignorantly, I think it's irresponsible. I, I would agree with that. I do you think it's irresponsible? And, um, and I, I think especially in the case of Trump, it's a way to deflect from the actual issues and get the press and everybody riled up about, you know, using a certain word or doing a certain thing to deflect from all the right. stuff that's really going on sure. that we should really, really be worried and about. it
1: works. Oh yeah, it, it sure oh, yeah. well, It's like Mark was saying an argument, when you have an argument with your wife or your husband or whatever, right. that's the same thing. It's mm-hmm. deflection. I, I'm not going to admit that I control. did something. Yeah, I and to yeah exactly to gain an emotional control. Mm-hmm. So because as, as soon as you can get somebody <coughs> out of control. Oh, then, yeah, Yeah. then Then you got them. Then
2: then it's reeled in. Right. And that's why I think it's really important that we know um, and respect the fact that like even ancient people thought that oratory and rhetoric were two of the most important things because what you say really does matter. Explain that. Okay. So for instance, I'm actually researching, I'm going to be writing a play. um, I started writing a play about Seneca and Nero. Seneca was an ancient Roman playwright and philosopher, and he was the tutor of Emperor Nero, who was a real kind of crazy person. And, you know, I'm kind of sloppily using the word crazy, so forgive me. But So Seneca was an interesting figure because... Um, He was a Stoic, which means he, you know, really believed in duty and, you know, kind of shunning your emotions and just, like, focusing on what's rational and everything. But Nero was the exact opposite of that. Seneca was trying to, as Nero's tutor, trying to get him to understand Uh, language and how you talk to people and how you speak as an orator and it just wasn't working very well so uh, Seneca ended up writing um, pretty much all of Nero's major speeches and they were you know rhetorically very beautiful at the beginning of Nero's reign and he became emperor when he was something like 16 or 17 you know so quite young he was you know coming off of an era where you know Caligula was just killing all these people, and then Claudius, you know, was murdered by Agrippina, um, Nero's mother, and yeah. You know, so there is this desire to say, okay, now this is a new era where we're all going to be, you know, merciful and clement, and there's not going to be any more um, murdering of our enemies. Of course, that goes completely wrong. Nero does all the <laughs> mm-hmm. murdering of everybody, and including his mother, you know. And there was a speech that Nero gave. It was to say, this is a new day. A new day is dawning with my reign, and it's not going to be like this anymore. And I was trying to convince people to accept nero as the new emperor the point i'm trying to make i guess is that when the greeks and romans were thinking about like you know philosophically speaking what are the important things to be able to do if you're going to be effective as Mm -hmm. a leader maybe as a ruler but you know just a teacher a leader a, a good community member you should be able to speak well and you should be able to persuade people of what your opinion is, you know. So if you say, okay, well, I think that everybody should have health care, you should be able to make that argument, and that's what rhetoric is, you know, um, persuading people to your side. And how you do that is through speaking, through oratory. If you're not a good speaker, you're not going to be able to convince anybody of anything. point. Yeah. And, you know, of course, not everybody was literate for many, many years, right? right? I mean, you know, like mass literacy is really a pretty modern phenomenon, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so uh, it was more important that you could, you could speak, speak. Yeah. than it was that you could write well. And that was true for many, many, many years, most of human mm-hmm. history, well,
0: mm-hmm. I, that's what they say. You need a great speechwriter when you're going to go into politics or anything. You know, it's like you have to have somebody that can really get your voice. Right. You know? But
1: you know, Nero well, you said knowing your audience, right? right. right. So right. I said, all oh, right, because that's a big thing. You, the words that you use are going to be different depending upon
2: your audience. Right. And Nero is one of the first Roman emperors to actually use a speechwriter, from what I've read. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you should never go without a speechwriter. Get somebody that's smarter than you, you know? <laughs> you can always put two words together, but they can make it sound great. <laughs> well, now, you kind of touched on this, you know, King James. Now, it, you said something earlier off the show. You were talking mm-hmm. about the King James version right. of the Bible. Right, And there was something interesting. Yeah,
1: because we were talking about all...
2: Different versions have different interpretations. Yeah. Right. And
0: it's like, so I'm kind of intrigued because you said it off the air, but we wanted to talk about it on the air. (laughs) Right.
2: Yeah. So um, remember I was saying with Hamlet that thee and thou and thine and all that stuff is an informal approach to the the pronoun you, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's also important to know that thou and thee and all that... Is a singular version of what we now use "you" for all the time, right? Okay. So singular "thou," and really, this is kind of getting into the uh, <laughs> the weeds of "the" and "thou" and whatnot. But thou would be, like, the subject form. So, you know, like, a subject of a sentence, like, I am going to the store. That's I as the subject of a sentence, right? Mm -hmm. So thou would be used for a subject. Thee would be used as an object. Interestingly enough, if you think about, like, the King James Version of the Bible, which was written in 1611 during Shakespeare's lifetime, although we don't think he has anything to do with it, unfortunately. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? They use thou and thee uh, to refer to God and we think of that as a really sort of archaic um, language and so some people like get you know they see that as an obstacle to understanding it but what's really interesting to me about the about the use of thou in referring to God is that they're using the singular form of the pronoun now why is that important Well, of course, you know, the ancient times where, you know, uh, the Israelites and and Hebrews and whatnot, uh, that group, are coming into a monotheistic religion instead of a polytheistic religion. The intentional use of thou in reference to God means that there's only one God instead of a polytheistic God, okay? so if But if the people writing the King James Bible were to use you, there would cause confusion about whether or not God was a single God or a group of gods. Huh. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. So I think that that, to me, is very interesting. It also is interesting to say thou or thee with God because it also implies a personal, intimate relationship with God. I mean, that's, you know, something that like people like, oh, that's just old timey, you know, King Jamesy kind of talk or whatever. And, you know, that's just that version of the Bible. But that use has a significance that if you don't know anything about the word choice, you're going to completely miss that it's a monotheistic God, that it is a familiar relationship and that you can talk to God as if he's your friend.
0: And I got to tell you, because I would have taken the complete opposite to that. You right. know, I would have thought it meant it was it, there was a distance, there was a because it seems so so formal
1: por- now. Yeah, it so seems formal. formal now. And oh, you know, yeah, and who knew it
0: was a position. hickish version of. <laughs> 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 but I mean, you know, it's it's fascinating when you talk about these kinds of things, and for just what you were talking about how that has changed my perception i had no idea mm-hmm. no idea mm-hmm. so yeah i mean it, it there you go i mean if you're if you're i don't know how many people use the king james version is that an actual i've not? always
1: used the king james version i know you know different religions use different bibles
0: but see now that you read it you're closer to God because you can treat him like a friend. That's and you've
2: heard so. it here. <laughs> yeah, and, and Shakespeare actually would have used a different version of the Bible. Um, he would have used the Geneva Bible. And uh, because obviously, you know, King James Version came you know, later. later in his lifetime. But So there might be a specific instance in a, in a parable or something where a word choice is used that you're not used to. And you think, oh. wait a second, what's going on here? For instance... Um, I find it very interesting to look at the Prodigal Son parable, and the reason why is because, well, first of all, I just think it's an interesting story, but it's related to what we're talking about here because a lot of people don't know what the word prodigal means. They think it might mean uh, somebody who goes away and comes back, and that's not what it means at all. In in Shakespeare's lifetime, um, you know, prodigal was used often as a synonym for someone who's foolish or who's mm. um, spending money in a stupid way or, you know, and that, that word still means that today, you know, but people think it means something else. It's, it's actually evolved to mean somebody who goes away and comes back, but that's just like one definition of it. It's also somebody who's very foolish. But Does that I... become a definition because it's become socially acceptable
1: because of that? I mean, yeah. did they actually change the definition to fit society versus right. the other way around?
2: Right. So the yeah. the OED and all all dictionaries have to be revised um, based on you know the culture's use of language, and so they're constantly revising these things. And and yeah, uh, that definition of prodigal you know was included in the dictionary because of cultural use. Didn't know that
1: either. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know that makes sense, but mm-hmm. I can't say I've ever thought about that. The definitions of words change because society changes and social norms change. And Yes. But that, makes sense, that yeah. would make complete chaos out of reading ancient texts. Right. Because it means different than what you can even look up in the dictionary right. to say it means, but that's not what it meant back then, which is where it comes to the Oxford Dictionary. When right. was the word Mm -hmm. originated
2: Mm -hmm. makes is really important it's so important especially if you are reading anything that's older than you know yourself and um i I think that uh you know even even things in my own life you know my kids will use words that i'm like oh my gosh i need the urban dictionary i have no idea what you're talking Mm -hmm. about so knowing the right dictionary to use is really important for instance in the prodigal son parable you know the son asks for his inheritance, and he goes off. Well, what does that even mean to ask for your inheritance? What uh, biblical scholars say is that what that means is that he wants to pretend that his dad is dead, um, because he wouldn't get his inheritance unless his father was dead. And so there are implications to that choice, right? Basically disavowing the family. And uh, so when uh, he you know, goes off, spends it all, and then is uh, you know, feeding animals, I can't remember if it's pigs or what it is, but some versions of that uh, story say that the son came to himself What does that mean? Is it like he just suddenly realized something? Is it that he actually repented? Is it that he concocted a plan? What does it really mean? And if you read the story carefully, he never really says, oh, I really regret my choice. I think I should go apologize because I feel so bad and I really want my relationship with my father back. Instead, Mm. he says, you know what, my dad has all these people, all these servants that are eating pretty good. I'm sitting here starving. I think I should go home and eat. (laughs) So what is that story? He wasn't really regretful, he's just hungry. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, yeah, so like when that story is told, the way that it's told is really important. And the sort of surface level idea that you get from it is that he repents and that he goes home and says... You know, I have sinned, father, I have sinned against God and against you. Treat me as like one of your paid servants or something like that, or treat me like one of your servants, Mm -hmm. right? Who obviously is going to have food, is going to have clothes, is going to have a home, right? You know, yeah, it's not as good to be treated as a servant as it is to be treated like a son, However, it's still pretty good. I was gonna if say you're when dying. you're sleeping right. with pigs, I guess. It, <laughs> yeah.
1: interesting. 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 Yeah,
0: I mean, and again, it goes back to what you're saying, how you're saying it, and what, what you're that really means. exactly, and yeah. what you're trying to convey the message. Right. I've heard the story before. I would have never gone that deep with it because right. I I would have never even thought about it. See, I thought it was this whole happy story, and like, mm-hmm. huh. He didn't actually say that, did he? You know?
2: Right. Well, I mean, and you know, the thing is, is that you can come at it from lots of different angles. It could be a happy story. I mean, it gets the family back together. The father doesn't really care why he comes back. He runs out and is all excited to see exactly. him. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't like really matter how he feels, except for I think it does. You know, and <laughs> I, I mean, think it does yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: yeah.
2: again, it changes the perception
0: of the. But it I does. guess that's kind of like what we're talking about is yeah. the that's perception the point, of it. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, definitely. I mean, it, it, you, you've opened my eyes on I've got to tell you. Well, <laughs> yeah,
2: I mean, like, so how things are written and then how they are said and how they are interpreted are all different parts of a complete picture. And the only thing that we have to manage all of that is words. And, um, and so words are very important. Um, and I can't tell you how many times I've gotten a text or an email or something that wasn't clearly written and I'm like oh my gosh what is this are you angry at me what did I do mm-hmm, or whatever there, yep. or uh, you know it sounds very harsh and you know formal or something but it's it's really not that um, so like knowing your audience and how to use the words to convey what the, the feeling that mm-hmm. you have is so hard and, and also really important it's hard.
0: I gotta tell you but important mm-hmm. so before we leave the show i want to talk about tiki kitchen just real quick you know mm-hmm. if you can kind of because where does it come from and it does not mean what i think it means so right yeah. so kind of give us an insight on that real quick.
2: right so my husband Arik started tiki kitchen a long time ago and basically it's full-scale web design agency you know we could do marketing copy and websites and you know, animated films and whatever, and, you know, photography, blah, blah, blah. So it's lots and lots of stuff, right? I actually wrote a blog post about this, oh, sometime this summer, I think, because people, you know, hear, uh, you know, his company name and say, well, gosh, what do you do? Do you make kitchens that look like they're a tiki bar or what do you do, right? (laughs) What food do
1: you serve why? (laughs)
2: yeah. Yeah. It comes from uh, a combination of things that that really define who my husband is, who Arik is. He was born in Hawaii um, on the island of Oahu, and his dad was uh, stationed there. He's a Navy um, guy, and uh, they lived there for... I think four years total, but he was, he was born there and only lived there for a year and then they moved to California. But ever since then, he had never been back to Hawaii until two years ago, we got an opportunity to go, but he was always really fascinated by tiki and like Polynesian art and Hawaiian things. and His heritage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And even though he himself is not like a sort of indigenous Hawaiian type, um, you know, he's a, he's a you know, average white guy. Um, But, uh, you know, um, but he was always really fascinated with that culture. And and so he got really interested in tiki, and and then you know when we first got together 20 years ago, he was working in um, kitchens. You know, was really interested in cooking and creating, and he just thought, well, I'll just put it together for tiki kitchen. And you know, it gets it gets even deeper than that, which I would I would refer to the blog post um, if I can like kind of remember. Well, we're going to actually put
0: right. your website a link okay. on there, so if you really want to hear the story behind it, it's kind of yeah. fascinating because when we were talking about, it, I'm like. Man, you know, people got to hear what that really means. So, mm-hmm. but I want to thank you so much for coming in, yeah. explaining this to us, giving us some perspective on this. And for people out there, they can actually kind of, hey, that might mean something different, or it might mean something exactly the way you're taking it. But just remember, the person next to you might take it a completely well, different way. Well, and moment. remember,
1: when somebody's communicating with you, maybe they didn't use the right word. So right. instead of getting all bit out of shape, maybe you think. Through, think that through. and uh, Maybe they didn't use the correct terminology or the exactly. correct word. Maybe you need to go back and clarify. Did you really mean that? Do you, do you know what that yeah. word means? <laughs> yeah.
0: Facetious, do you really know what yeah. that mean, word means? There you go. So, well, thank you so much, Dr. Marsha Epic Harris. Do not change that name. That's a great name. Thank you for coming on the show and explaining this it was to us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Well, i got to tell you, fascinating stuff when you learn what words really mean and what they matter to people, right?
1: Right, exactly, especially if somebody knows what they're talking about, you know, <laughs> besides just giving definition. I mean, who knew there were 10 pages of definitions for the word counterfeit? I know, man, I mean, it makes sense, but... Mind-blowing. I never really thought about it, so I think it's really important that everybody take away from today's show that words do matter, and knowing what you're saying, it matters. And, yeah, and understanding that maybe some people don't know what they're saying when they say it to you and we get upset Maybe we need to take take a step step back back. and say, okay, maybe they didn't know exactly what that, how that came across or what that meant.
0: Absolutely. So we're about out of time for this show, and we have some great news. Starting January 1st, 2022, you can find our show at livingonpurposepodcast.com or any of the podcast platform like Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher. Just search Living on Purpose Podcast and subscribe to the podcast or look us up on Facebook and give us a like. And let us know what you want to add to this new show. That's
1: right.
0: So live every day of your life. On purpose. On purpose.